0: The people who believe they already have total free will and are totally aware of all the important influences on them and make all their decisions consciously and they're aware of the intent every single one of them and all that, that's great. They're entitled to believe that. Those people actually have less free will than people who realize that there are these other things that are going on. If you're aware that you could possibly be being manipulated or influenced by these outside things, you can control them. In fact, the whole way to have more free will is to recognize how the system works about those things that you're not aware. And then once you are aware, you can make use of them. You can actually you can turn them to your advantage. That's the whole point that I'm trying to make about free will. The only way we have free will is if we're aware of reality and don't live in some kind of nice land, fantasy land, where we believe what we want to believe. That's delusional. That's not free will. That's pretending we have free will like an ostrich sticking in the head in the sand. That's not really free will.
1: This is The Way Podcast.
0: The militias needed to have a heads up. Oh, I was coming. I personally think they didn't you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. You know, I've been incarcerated most of my life. I'm having a know. conversation with or They've Bill. been given no option, either join or die. Yeah, th- snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most
1: of the choir session. I'm standing at the studio blast, looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about the Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with the Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHO stores at the top of the hour. On FM 90.3, South Kingston at the top of the hour. Today, I'll be talking with Professor John A. Barge is a professor of psychology and cognitive science and a professor of management at Yale University. He's the author of Before You Know It, The Use and Abuse of Power, Unintended Thought, The New Unconscious Mind, and much more we're going to talk about. But basically, today's theme is the unconscious mind, what it is, how it works, its history, even everything about it. We're going to talk about that today. And don't forget to give a five-star rating, review, share the show. Every little bit helps. You can go to podcasttheway.com for more information again that's podcast the so yeah now that we're recording yeah i asked um so how do you know like what's the good science versus the bad signs when you buy a book at say the bookstore
0: yeah you don't uh you know and, and people say you shouldn't judge a book a book by its cover but then how well how the hell else are you gonna judge you're gonna read the <laughs> whole thing in the store no you gotta judge it by its cover it's all you've got so, so uh, you know, usually people look at who's, um, the, you know, the blurb that uh, recommends the book, like, like uh, Daniel Kahneman, you know, at the top, or, uh, or um, um, they got the Gladwell, like Malcolm Gladwell, uh, or somebody, you know, who says this is great or something. So, okay, okay, they put their stamp of approval on it. I think that's one way to filter it. Um, but, but, uh, the problem is the book publishers want to make a buck and they don't necessarily care about getting the accurate information out there. So, um, you know, the, the issue is, uh, how do people who want to know what's really going on, the truth about, you know, human mind and all that, how do, how do you separate the valuable real science from the pseudoscience? I, I this is, this the problem in general, because there's so much pseudoscience about say COVID yeah. and viruses and uh, or anything and and people who want to to uh, trust science uh, often get misled because they think they're reading science uh they think it's good science but it's not and so something that seems scientific is very persuasive of people and if it's coached couched in scientific language like whatever that stuff was chlorophylloquil or you <laughs> oh, know, yeah, you know that. That. but yeah. it sounds like a real thing it sounds like, oh, it sounds like a real real uh, prescription you know it sounds like a real thing like the pseudoscience is really a problem you know because now you're thinking oh it has the 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 feeling of a science the trappings of a science got those long words that we can't pronounce oh that must be science and then and people trust it and that's an easy way now to mislead people who are just trying to find the truth
1: and i've heard these research papers will come out saying something like the sky is blue but then there will be like a sentence saying oh there's a green tint to it or something and then the news will say oh scientists say the sky is green yeah. and yeah
0: i have a problem personally i mean i think a lot of people do with um uh, with science journalism especially in my field uh, because the problem with science journalism unless it's a major field that lots of people are experts in you know like physics or chemistry or or uh, astronomy or something Something like psychology, there's no accountability. The, the the person who's the editor of the of the newspaper or magazine doesn't know, and if the science writer is just out for sensationalism or uh, doing what you just said and and uh, spinning something to make it sound all weird and new and exciting, they'll they'll they won't know. The, the editors don't know. So there's no accountability for a lot of science journalism. There's no one above them who's telling them you can't say that. That's not true. Why are you saying this? And uh, because what the journalist is trying to do is get number of, you know, increase the number of hits, number of likes, number of follows, number of, uh, you know, reposts or whatever that is. Um, and, and the way to do that is to be scandal, you know, go after scandal, make up a scandal if you need to, go after sensationalism. And and they had their own personal uh, career agenda um, going on here, not just the noble aspiration to tell the truth and get the truth out to the public. So you know, that's and and that's true of New York, New York Times. That's true of major uh media outlets. You know, they're trying to make a profit and they're trying to gain readers. And sometimes the best way to do that is to put something shocking and uh, attention grabbing uh up that may not be actually uh verified or or good science. So you know, we have we have a problem here. We we think we think our quality outlets like New York Times, Washington Post, so forth. we we can trust them because all they're interested in is telling us the truth, but that's not the case. I mean, I remember, I'm sorry to go on like this, but I remember back when when the internet was starting and I was doing research on the actual social uses and uh, what are people doing with the internet back in the 90s when it was just starting. uh, New York Times front page story over and over, internet use causes depression. Study finds that people on the internet on computers are more depressed and lonely. All these front page shock headlines, which were not true at all. People who were actually looking at what was going on were finding that people were finding each other, people who didn't have an opportunity for social contacts. Let's say the elderly or people who are sick or people who have a certain hobby or, or passion but that live in a tiny town and no one shares it. Suddenly, they're connected on the internet. So, you know, 10,000 people who collect butterflies or whatever the hell it is problem is is that they're competing with the internet for advertising and they want people to not use the internet because they want them to read actual newspapers instead and this was back in the 90s and so they're going to promote stories that make the internet seem like a bad place and that's their their corporate agenda it's not necessarily you know always about getting the truth out to you
1: and i'll bring to unconscious mind soon but isn't there some truth to that like doesn't the internet actually cause depression when social media and there's that whole idea about Seeing all these great lives and everybody feels down about it as a result. Oh,
0: oh yeah, oh yeah. No, no. There, there, there's uh, there's definitely effects of the internet on mood. Uh, Facebook, in fact, did its own study of 700,000 users a few years ago, uh, and they actually did an experiment. This was the controversial part. They weren't just measuring and correlating. But they were actually causing, they actually manipulated the news feed of these 700,000 people to make it either more positive or more negative than usual. And they found that the person's own posts, if you look at the words they use and that kind of thing, were actually becoming themselves for three or five days later more positive or more negative, depending on how Facebook manipulated their news feed. So it was like a contagion or mood effect that really was spreading, and they could manipulate it. And people screamed about that. Uh, now, the, the the end of that story is they didn't make up anything. They actually just filtered what you see of all the possible friend posts that there are. And you can't possibly read every post by every one of the 300, 500 people that um, you're so-called friends with. But they did manipulate it up 20%, down 20%. The effects were very small. The effects are very small, but statistically significant because they have such power with 700,000 people. It becomes a significant effect, meaning it's a real effect, but it's a real small effect. So these effects do happen, can happen, and they're certainly you know because of social media. But they also happen within uh, groups who know each other, like alumni association members or other people who have the the old-fashioned kinds of ties, not not electronic. But you get the same effects there with contagion, things like obesity depression cooperation happiness all spread through social networks and they have since the we've known this since the 1980s even before social media you know maybe social media increases it or enhances intensifies it or something but you know social networks always have these effects uh things spread through the people you know to you
1: gotcha so yeah it's still the same news taking place everywhere but it's now they target the depressing or the happy to get that result but how much of that is the unconscious mind at play
0: yeah well you know i wear different hats and uh, that was my internet research day and that's not necessarily everything else i've done besides that area of research that i started in the 1990s uh when the internet was just starting everything else has pretty much been about effects that you're not aware of and I, i you can include the internet effects to some extent because there are powerful motivational effects we did studies of people with stigmatized identities these are people with embarrassing things about themselves that they really just couldn't ask, you know, other people in their small town or whatever. Are you interested in X? Because then, oh, my God, you're a weirdo, you're a pervert. And, uh, you know, there would be no one does that because everyone would laugh at you and shun you. And uh, and, and so there's these things that people keep secret. But, you know, they're not necessarily they, they could be political. They could be. I, uh, am back then, I'm a white supremacist person, perhaps, or I have racist beliefs, or uh, I have things like epilepsy, or I stutter, or things that you just don't want everyone to know about. But um, that means you can't talk to anybody about it. You feel very alone and isolated. The internet really opened that up where people can meet and talk with other people who were similar to themselves in these ways that they couldn't find people in real life. And what we found was that there was a lot more self-acceptance. Uh, among people who are on these, they were called alt groups, alt dot something, you know, and they were yeah. a whole lot of them. Um, and now, you know, it's just, it's everywhere. It's very easy. But back then it was a new thing. But by finding people who are similar, who shared an interest, who shared a, a, a passion, who shared a weirdness, uh, people started accepting themselves like, hey, I'm not the only one. You know, I'm, uh, uh, there are people like me and they're all saying, yeah, this is okay. You know, I, I have a a good life. I'm a good father, mother, or uh, whatever it is. And you know, you're not you're not alone, and you're not just a, a horrible person because of this. And they support each other. The, the downside of that was they got so much self acceptance they started telling their friends and family about these things for the first time. You know, like, hey, uh, hey, honey, guess what? You know, says the 50 year old husband. I'm a neo Nazi, or you know, something like that. It's like, well, you know, they they told their friends and family, but often it led to breakups. Often it led to uh, estrangement from your kids and break up of of couples because you've been like this your whole life. I've been married to you for 30 years. You never told me, you know, that you like to, you know, like to uh, touch uh, a lamb's wool or something, What I don't know, something like that, you know, Uh, why didn't you? And, you know, and, or it's worse and then, and then they break up. So it's not always a bed of roses when you come out about things that uh, you've held private your whole life that they really felt a need to, now that they've accepted it in themselves. So the thing about the unconscious influences is there's a lot of motivational influences on us. Our goals uh, that we're we're currently pursuing have a control over us. They change the way we see and evaluate and prefer things. I mean, there's studies, for example, college students, um, uh, if you trigger and induce them to have sort of a goal of studying and achievement, I ask them who their best friends are. They basically list their study buddies as their best friends and they rank them. If you induce more of a party, relaxation, fun kind of mindset, suddenly they list their best friends to their party, their party buddies, you know, they're, uh, and, uh, they're, they don't realize this influence that what they're doing is it's the goal. They're seeing the world through their goals, eyes, they're seeing the world through their current goals, eyes, and they're evaluating things. You know, if you if you you're thinking about, you know, uh, being attractive and and, uh, attracting a a life partner or uh, just a friend or something, you'll be more concerned about your appearance. And with that goal operating, then you say, oh, you know, uh, diet pills and tanning salons aren't that risky. You know, they're not that unhealthy. But when that goal is not active, you see no way, man, I'm not risking my health uh, for this maybe possible uh, small gain in attractiveness. so your values and your goals and your, your your assessment of risk, which is which is tricky because you know then these people will necessarily possibly do things that they wouldn't do otherwise that are risky things to their health because that's what their goal is right now. They're so interested in in, in attaining that goal. That's something that you're aware of. You're usually aware of your goals. You're not aware of the power they have over you, you know, the power they have temporarily to, to change what you do, and, and there's Often, often, long-term consequences. I'll stop there because I could go on forever. What, what, I, I want to say one thing: emotions. Emotions have, have strong motivational consequences. When you're angry, you really want to tell that person off. And there was a famous case of a Kentucky Derby uh, winner a few years ago. Uh, California Chrome was the horse. This must be 2014 or 15, and and uh, lost the Triple Crown at the last race on the Belmont at the by a nose or something. He was furious because the horse that won hadn't raced the other two races and was well rested. His horse had to win, had to run the Derby and the and the Preakness too. And he was screaming and mad how unfair this was. And he was just a really bad loser and on national television. And his wife, with one of those stupid, you know, hats they wear at the track, uh, was telling him, you know, Steve, you know, stop it. And he turns around, and he lashes out at his wife and their old married couple. And she looks shocked. Cause he's like telling her off, like, shut up, you know, this needs saying, blah, 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 blah. And he was a real asshole. And it's because he was angry and he was just feeling like in the moment, I need I the power, the, the motive to say these things and to to um you know make sure people realize how unfair the situation is and all that it was so powerful it overrode everything else. And then of course he calms down and spends the next you know month or two uh, apologizing for it um but we always we often do things in the heat of the moment because that's what the goal and motive is and it's so powerful telling us this is the right thing to do yes yes do that tell everybody how unfair it is and 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 then you you know repent at leisure after that
1: yeah. there's a lot to respond so like <laughs> first off i remember uh, talking with Dr. Mia Bloom whose specialty is like QAnon and basically so many families today are breaking apart because of this conspiracy where like people join QAnon, they go down that rabbit hole, and as a result, they see everyone else is not caring about saving the kids because that's like the message behind QAnon save the kids, save these kidnappings happening, all that stuff. So then they're breaking up with their husbands and their wives because they're like, Why don't you care about the kids? Because they don't want to go down that same QAnon rabbit hole. And then the reason we get angry, there's a bunch of reasons, but like a main reason is because of these goals like we get angry when somebody blocks us and in traffic if you're stuck and you need to get to work work is your goal and then you're getting angry because all these people are slowing you down when the Kentucky derby your goal is winning the race and now you're getting angry because you feel like you were done poorly like something like oh he got the rest those few days that's a reason to get angry shouldn't be a you gotta control your emotions (laughs) but so yeah, guess- absolutely.
0: Yeah. You, you hit on something really important and it's really overlooked. Uh, I am writing another book and and that this is a, a, a feature of that part, which is just in daily life. We don't realize how how are just even small little, you know, not that even important goals like I'm trying to um, uh, get something uh, printed out in the printer, and it won't print. Now, it could it could take an hour or two. To, I have the time; it's not that urgent. But but just the blockage of any goal at all makes you angry and frustrated, and you and then you, and you tend to lash out like it's the most important thing. Like let's say my daughter's having a, a friend over um, in that room where the printer is, but I can't get to the printer, and I feel all frustrated and, and blocked, and, and 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 liable to be sort of crabby at her for even being in that room and blocking. And, and you take out these little frustrations. You know, if, if I'm doing this, uh, uh, we're talking right now, let's say we have a five minute break or I'm teaching a class. We have a five minute break and I go into the kitchen here and, and make myself some coffee. But what if my daughter, and my wife are using the kitchen at that moment and I and I can't get at the stuff I need. They didn't know I was going to come in, uh, but I'm sort of crabby and, and short with them uh, because they're in my way. You know because they're blocking me and i only have a few minutes and i get all crabby it's like you know turn it around what's the experience of that from their side you know here's this nasty crabby guy why because he just can't make coffee at this instant i mean what's the big deal and if you look at it and reflect on it yourself you all you say the same thing why was i you know these are people i love these are people i i you know who cares about a stupid cup of coffee uh but when the goal is operating it's like yeah, I don't know if you remember this movie Lord of the Rings, uh, but uh, or the story of Lord of the Rings, but there's a scene I love that it, it epitomizes this, where old friendly, wonderful Uncle Bilbo, Bilbo baggins, uh, and Frodo is there, and Frodo's got the ring. And Frodo uh he shows Bilbo the ring. Bilbo wants the ring. It's like an addiction, right? This is the thing. And and Bilbo's face, when Frodo says no, he can't uh touch it or can't take it changes into this monster phase ah, and scares Frodo. And Bilbo, oh, oh sorry. Uh, and then that's the kind of thing it turns us into. It turns us into this, oh, our goal is blocked. Ah, and we get all nasty and frustrated. And we, you know, moment after moment after moment, these things accumulate and really affect our interpersonal relations with people. I mean, you know, we don't want to do that. And it's the goal taking us over that that's the problem. That I would call that an unconscious effect because we're not really aware of how the goal is transforming us and, and making us react to things based on whether they're good or bad for the goal, where, you know, separately from whether they're good or bad for us, you know, which doesn't seem to be a consideration in that moment, but we all do it and we do it all the time.
1: Fair enough, Ian. Well, first off, I feel like I need to address, so like the audience has an idea, what even is this unconscious? Like, what is our unconscious?
0: Yeah, well, Bill. I mean, this I, this is an hour. This is a couple hours, but I'll try to make this uh, quick. We have uh, the idea of unconscious influences going back to George Washington. I have a bust. You can't see it, maybe, on my mantle there of George Washington for this very reason. George Washington. You know, in the in the famous uh, musical Hamilton, uh, George Washington is a key a key uh, uh, player in especially the second half of the uh, second act, second half of the play um, of the musical. Um, And uh, George Washington had a very famous farewell address to the nation when he decided not to run for reelection. I think it's 1796, he died shortly after that. Uh, I don't know if he knew he was sick or not but um, he, he had a farewell address and Hamilton only quotes one line from that farewell address. And basically he says, you know, I'm sure I made a lot of mistakes along the way but I was unconscious of any of them. So was he unconscious like a zombie walking around making mistakes? No. What he meant was that he was unaware at the time that these were mistakes. He, was, he didn't intend them and he wasn't aware. And that's how uh, uh, George Washington, that's how uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, if you read the Sherlock Holmes study, Charles Darwin in Origin of Species also uses the word that way. Uh, that people are unaware and do not intend these things that they do. It doesn't mean that they weren't aware in terms of uh, can't, didn't see them. And the problem with modern psychology is that it's defined unconscious in terms of subliminal stimuli. So in other words, for something to be unconscious in modern psychology, you have to present the information uh, where the person doesn't even see what happened. Well, you know, that's not the sense of George Washington or Charles Darwin or Sherlock Holmes, uh, Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes and and so forth. Uh, Their sense is that we're unaware. We may see the person. We may uh, be in the situation. We may be totally visually aware of all of it, but we're not aware of the consequences. We're not aware of the influences on us. We're not aware of how that's affecting us. And so we do what we do and we misunderstand it for other reasons than the real reasons. And so the unconscious effects of everyday life that are so pervasive are those kinds of things. They're not subliminal things. They're effects of what people say and do in context Uh, where different people may be in different situations. You know, there's studies of of investment bankers, for example, who are at home and they're asked uh, to do a self-report on on honor system of how many uh, coin heads they toss because they'll get paid for every one, every head they toss out of 20 coins. And if you just ask them at home, these investment bankers in Zurich are are actually really honest. Some don't do well, some do better than average, but most are right around the middle of what you expect by chance, 50%. But if you just ask them right before that to write down, before you ask them to flip the coins, you ask them to write down a description of their office, you know, their workplace, where they spend Monday through Friday, downtown Zurich at UBS or or Credit Suisse or wherever it is. And and just as a separate part of the study, then you have them do that, they're not honest anymore. They overestimate, Uh, they uh, exaggerate how many uh, heads, uh, that now it's greater than what you expect just from chance. It's all shifted to the right in terms of number of heads they report. What that's saying is you you prime or activate a person's situational identities like investment banker by having them think about where they work, they become dishonest, they become immoral, they become greedy. The same person who, if you didn't do that and they're randomly assigned, so if you didn't do that, they would have been totally honest. So these situations, these contexts, of when you're with one person versus another person, you know, all these things shift us around and change even our moral values and our moral behavior without our realizing it.
1: Yeah. Gotcha. So wait, in that case, it sounded like uh, you flip a coin. It's very concrete. It's like factual, like you, it's yes or no. But the uh, saying what your office is like, that's very subjective. So is it that subjectivity you're able to exaggerate to fit your goal?
0: Yeah, that, that I, I should have been clearer on that. What they were asked to do is just write down a physical description of their office, you know, like basically, how are the desks arranged? Is it open plan? Uh, you know, what their the windows? I mean, you know, just basically a physical description of where they work during the week. So it wasn't meant to be subjective. Uh, that kind of thing it was meant to be sort of a, an objective. They're trying to keep it away from mentioning anything about their work, just something very subtle about just to activate you know so they have to sort of visualize their workplace and once you do that all the other baggage comes along the goals the motives the 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 standards of your boss uh you know to make a certain amount of uh, money every week and all those kinds of things
1: okay sounds good to make sure i have the unconscious understood like from my perspective against like a very complicated definition but so the subconscious basically we go through life we're conscious we're Seeing this and that, but the subconscious is how we internally, it's like a second brain almost saying, Oh, I feel like this from the color of the orange, or I feel like this or that, but we don't even realize that's taking place.
0: Well, yeah, they're usually not as trivial as the color orange. Uh, for example, their, their primary motives we have from the, there's various sources of these things. And the idea is, uh, first of all, the problem we have in our field is that most people know when they hear unconscious, they think of Freud. And what they think of as a separate unconscious mind, like a separate part of our brain, uh, that's operating. And Freud said, "Well, this is uh, you know the primary reaction we have to things. It filters experience and lets things into consciousness, and lets other and blocks others. So it's like a, a sensor uh, to to uh, protect our our emotions, protect our uh, feelings of self esteem, and all that." Well. Clearly neuroscience and uh, brain imaging had found no evidence that there's any such thing as a separate unconscious mind. The second part of that is it wouldn't make any sense to have this destructive malevolent unconscious mind that Freud proposed based on principles of evolution and natural selection. How would that possibly evolve? Here is a thing that makes you uh, less likely to survive and less adaptive and causes problems and uh, you know mayhem. Mayhem. Uh, that would well, survive natural selection, right?
1: What if it did the opposite? Like, what if uh, that second mind made us survive better and like let us... Yes, up, like that it does. Feeling kind of thing? It,
0: it does, but it's not a separate mind. The, the, okay. what, what's going on is there's a single mind. It can operate in conscious or unconscious mode. But when it's operating in unconscious... If you do a brain imaging of people doing something intentionally and consciously, and then induce them to do it unconsciously, so it's happening without their awareness, or you distract their attention so they can't possibly be doing it with attention, you have them count backwards from some number by seven, right? While they're doing the same thing. Well, they know they're gonna make a choice afterwards but you've distracted their attention. If you look at what's going on in their, in their minds, the same brain regions are active in both cases. In one case, they're aware of it. The other case, they're not. But the same parts of the brain that handle reward, handle motivation, handle uh, face recognition, handle words and verbal language. Everything is active in both cases the same. It's just in one case, you're aware of it. In one case, you're not aware of it. So it's very able to operate without your awareness. And if you think about evolution and the fact that The signs of conscious kind of control over your own mind are very recent in evolution in terms of um, human history. Uh, That didn't happen really until about 100,000 years ago. But before that, through all the millions of years of evolution, things worked pretty well. They they got us to that point. we, We survived and evolved for millions and millions of years without really having this intentional conscious control over our apparatus. So it's a relatively late evolutionary development. So it makes use of the old structures. You know, you don't have this new brain evolving all of a sudden, it's, you know, things are gradual, incremental, uh, organic. Uh, And so we basically are now consciously able to make use of the old uh, motivational and reward and behavior and attentional structures that were there used to be operating totally unconsciously. So it's just one mind, it's a single mind but it it can operate in unconscious and, and conscious modes. And a lot of advertisers, you know, politicians, and people who want to influence us know how to operate it from outside of us. And so you know, what a lot of us are trying to do is tell everybody else, this is how it works. This is a user's manual. This is how they're manipulating you. Politicians make you feel afraid, makes you more conservative. Politicians make you feel safer, it makes you more liberal. And so forth. Advertisers and so they know this stuff. They're not going to tell us. Because they want to keep manipulating us for their own ends, for their own purposes.
1: You ever see that TED Talk? It's like one of the top ten all-time, but it's called Start With The Why?
0: Uh, who who is the person who did that?
1: Simon Sinek. Oh, no. Okay, so um, basically Start With The Why. It's like one of the top ten TED Talks, but then later <laughs> on I found out it has a lot of criticism, and some people don't actually believe like what he said, or I guess he's not fully accurate, but The idea is that when making decisions, like companies will use it or politicians, like you said, it's gonna be hard to explain it properly, but the idea is to start with the why, like as in facts don't alter people's perceptions or you can throw as many facts at somebody as you want, but the emotion is the main driving factor on who people vote for, or how people go about their life.
0: Well, I I just going by the title, since I haven't seen it, I actually don't pay too much attention to TED talks, but um, you know they are very influential and they're very in lots of cases really really neat and helpful, especially in areas I, I you know like physics or history or something. I just love learning new things. Um, but when you're in a field, they're not all that helpful, um, and especially with psychology, you got to be careful because uh, people love easy answers and uh, easy easy fixes, and uh, and that's great. But um, when I hear, uh, start with the why. I hear a couple of things. I hear follow the money is what I hear. I hear what's the purpose behind this? Why are, what's their motivation for doing this? Why are they suggesting this certain course of action? Dan Ariely, for example, tells great stories uh, about his own doctor uh, who's a, a a skin doctor. and Dermatologist, sorry. Uh, dermatologist, you know, and you know that story is very famous. And he tells it all the time about he was in the Israeli army and he was burned, horribly burned. When a, a, a firebomb or something uh, hit uh, and burned off his face, half his face. And so he had years and years of painful reconstructive surgery. Uh, and his doctor finally said, you know, what would be cool is uh, if we do uh, some more of this plastic surgery and uh, make it look like you've got sort of a half beard, you know, like you didn't shave for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And so that would match the other, and it would look like really even more natural than it does now. And actually, if you look at Dan's face, you know, when when you're with him in person, I haven't seen him for a long time, but at conferences and things, it looks very natural already. I mean, it's pretty amazing what what they did, given what happened to him. But he said, after a while, he realized that what really was going on is the doctor wanted more money. The doctor wanted more fees and money. And so it was good for the doctor, but it wasn't necessarily good for the patient. But the doctor somehow, because his goal of making the money and, and having even more fees or something for this additional unnecessary surgery he, was telling him it was a good thing, then he also was saying, oh, it was a good thing and thinking it was a good thing for Dan. And so that's the problem. Follow the money. Well, why are you saying this is a good thing for me? It's just cosmetic and I'm okay as it is. Well, you know, the real reason is because the doctor makes more money here. So if you follow the money, you, you follow what the person has to gain from the advice or from whatever it is then often you find out there is a mode of operating there. They may not realize it. You know, they they may be innocent. They may not realize that what's really pushing their advice to the patient is what they can do for themselves. You know, I I have lots of dental work done. I'm not so sure that every time I have to have a new crown or a crown replaced, it's really that necessary. You know, it's always in the summer and it's always, you know, during a downtime for my dentist and suddenly I need this crown replaced. And, yeah, so, you know, a couple of thousand bucks for the doc for the dentist every single time. It happens every year. <laughs> it's a little, a little suspicious. You know, so I think that's the why that I would worry about. You know, what is it, follow the money, and what is it that's, that's really underlying? Because oftentimes, and people could be well-intentioned, I don't mean to be cynical. I think that maybe they don't realize that what is really, what they're saying is good for their patient or for the other person is really what's good for them.
1: Makes sense. That makes me think of like greenwashing with corporations or them mm-hmm. saying, look at these big slogans where we want to help everybody. But in the background, they're still running sweatshops and yeah. doing all this horrible stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, right now we've got, you know, baseball fan right now, we've got this labor uh, stoppage, uh, the lockout thing going on with Major League Baseball. And if you read the people who really know what's going on, they say there's only about one thing here. It's about money and the players will say it's about competitive balance and all these high sounding things and the play and the owners will say something else that sounds like the best interest of baseball and they're all you know framing it and spinning it in some some high minded uh, abstract good for the game principle when it really all it is is money
1: so i'm going to bring it back you mentioned um evolution and how the conscious us being able to think the way we do is a more recent thing so that kind of feeds into and I had this question written up and then i realized oh you actually dove into the topic a bit but free will Mm -hmm. how does uh how much does the unconscious show that we have or don't have actual free will right Uh, so
0: this is why i went into this field i mean this is why i was when i was this is uh, 50 years ago because i've been doing this for 40 something years now uh when i was in high school and taking high school psychology Uh, This guy named B.F. Skinner, who was a famous behaviorist who ran Pigeons and Rats in the first half of the 20th century, wrote a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And it was a bestseller. It was on the cover of Time magazine, all this kind of stuff. And uh, it was a big issue. We debated this all year in our our high school class. And basically, Skinner said we don't have any free will because we're being controlled by the outside world, by things that happen out there that are rewarding or not. We're shaped by our rewards and punishments from the outside and all that. And our mind made no difference at all. Well, around that same time in psychology, uh, and, uh, as well as a lot of other revolutions that were happening in the 1960s, we had a cognitive revolution in psychology where people said enough with this, telling us that the, the, our minds made no difference. And, and actually, the behaviorists and Skinner forbade anyone from even studying consciousness or studying the mind or memory or anything. It's ridiculous. Uh, it put us back 50 years as a field. But people said enough. We're going to start doing this. And we're going to study consciousness and memory and attention and, and reasoning and judgment and all these things that Skinner told us for so long we couldn't do. And it was the cognitive revolution. That's when I started psychology. I was a student in the 1970s and actually high school, college and grad school, all the 1970s. And this was during the when the cognitive revolution was happening. So we only have now 40 years of science on this. Uh, we don't have 150. We don't have 1,000 years of science. We only have the last 40 years, thanks to Skinner. And what the science has basically shown on this question of free will, this is what I wanted to study, is that a lot of stuff doesn't require the conscious mind to make intentions and to, to guide things 24-7, as people always said. that the cognitive revolution came said said, it's like a pendulum swang from, no, the Skinner saying the mind didn't matter at all. To the the cognitive psychology people saying it mattered for everything, that your conscious mind made every choice, governed every decision, directed attention, was always operating, uh, unless you were asleep, maybe, uh, 24-7. And, you know, we didn't have any evidence. So I wanted to see what the answer was, was was actual studies. And the answer is in between. There's a whole lot of stuff that is influencing us from the outside. The the office environment of the investment bankers triggers motives and goals to make them immoral and make them greedy. That's that's an outside like Skinner type thing. But it works by activating what's in their mind. So their mind matters too. So it's a a combination of what's out there triggering what's in the person's mind. If you or I went into that office, it wouldn't have the same effect on us because we don't have the same kind of mental uh, representations and goals and things that those investment bankers have. So it's not just the outside world like Skinner said. But it's also not just the inside world of our head. It's, some, it's a combination of, of the two interacting or, or combining to affect people. So what does that say about free will? Okay, in psychology for a long time, the issue about free will wasn't really free will as much as does your conscious mind, your conscious thoughts make a difference? Do they have a causal role to play in your life, in your choices, in your feelings, in your emotions? Absolutely yes. If that's the question, does your conscious mind, conscious thoughts and all that matter and change things? Absolutely. For example, my best example for me is if you get some bad news, like you go to the doctor and there's some bad news, bad health news, okay? And when you get to be my agent or you start, and your friends, you start getting these bad news. Uh, And and what do you do? Well, the first thing you do to cope because it's very bad news or, or it's bad news is you start thinking of the people who have it worse than you. You start thinking of people who have even worse diseases or worse health problems. Uh, and, and, and by comparison, you're pretty good. You don't have that. You're not as far along and so forth. To give yourself some optimism and hope and feel better about the bad news to cope with it so you don't feel so horrible and depressed and everything else. You compare yourself. That's a totally conscious activity. It's called downward so downward comparison. You basically we do it all the time. We regulate our emotions by thinking of, of oh well, maybe today's not so good, but the weekend's going to be great. Or, oh well, you know, I have this uh, disease or this syndrome, but it's not the worst thing you could get. Everyone gets something, and I don't at least I have these other things that are so much worse. Or you know, I have this wonderful family and um, you know, I'm sure they'll support me. This is all conscious. This is all you're, you're manipulating your moods by by what you're thinking about and the comparisons you make and all these things. And absolutely, it's just an example, um, but absolutely there are many things we, we can only do consciously and intentionally. The unconscious cannot plan for the future. The unconscious is incapable pretty much of making plans for how to get something done. You have to do that consciously. You don't come up with an unconscious plan that guides you through all these things that uh, you know to get to get your goal accomplished. That's a conscious activity, um, and and there are other things too. But there are many things we can only do with our conscious thoughts and conscious mind. And as psychology has always defined free will, basically in terms of that question, uh, has said the conscious mind didn't matter at all, so we didn't have free will. But what we found is clearly, clearly, the conscious mind matters a lot. And if you define it that way, then we do have free
1: will. Okay. You brought up a good point because I always look as how much of the brain is just the chemical reactions. People say some people with depression or anxiety or whatever, is just a lack of this chemical or too much or how much of is our life is just the chemicals going off, making us feel a certain way. But yeah, if you consciously, maybe I know your research is talking about like drinking a warm tea or drink warm coffee, or if you. Give that mindset you just mentioned, like you can actually alter your emotion. It goes the other way around too.
0: Yeah, this is the, this is my my ending in, in my book. I, I try to close on this, and that is the people who believe they already have total free will and total are, are totally aware of all the important influences on them and make all their decisions consciously and they're aware and they intend every single one of them and all that. that's great. That's great. They're entitled to believe that. Those people actually have less free will than people who realize that there are these other things that are going on. Because if you realize that things like, you know, the warmth or coldness of your environment, or the fact that uh, that you are uh, being influenced perhaps by uh, certain kinds of ads or political slogans, or that you're uh, being made to feel afraid or made to feel uh, angry, or these things in your, or advertisers, you know, if, if you're aware that you caught, could possibly be being manipulated or influenced by these outside things, you can control them. In fact, the whole way to have more free will is to recognize how the, th- how the system works that, uh, about those things that you're not aware. And then once you are aware, you can make use of them. You can actually, you can turn them to your advantage. Um, that's what I try to do at the end of the book is give a lot of life hacks. Like, look, if you knew this, for example, there's contagion effects like, we, like you started with today uh, of other people's behavior, other people's moods on us. Well, it works the other way too. That, you know, there are books out saying that you have more influence than you think. And Vanessa Bones at Cornell, it's just a new book of hers. And Robert Cialdini, you know, very famous in the area of persuasion, uh, 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 also has said, you have more power over other people and what they choose and, and all that than you think you do. Why? Because your behavior, your moods, your, your face, your affect, your decisions and all that is a model for them. It affects them and it spreads out. It's like a ripple effect in a pond. So actually, we have more influence on others if we want to use it for good, hold the door for people coming into a building or being saying something nice to somebody about you know, their coat. I don't know what it is, but you know, this kind of stuff about spreading forward, it really works. It really does matter. Um Cialdini showed these massive effects in California on on conserving energy and and uh, uh, environmentally green energy use uh, choices by what the neighbors were doing. The number one most powerful uh, factor was information that they gave to people about what their neighbors were choosing and their neighbors were doing. The funny thing about that, when asked what were the important factors on their choice to use solar or to use some other kind of uh, uh, energy source, people ranked what their neighbors were doing as last. So we're totally uh, out of the loop as far as the real influence of other people and, and our neighbors and so forth on us and yet it is the most powerful influence that there is
1: <laughs> that threw me hit a bit of a loop where it's like oh that's actually the last reason huh How yeah
0: I- it's weird it's the last not even like low yeah. down it's actually the last no no that doesn't affect me
1: what about like doesn't the tribalism or like trend setting yeah. and stuff like that i thought like a lot of what we do is based off of social settings and us trying to blend in with the crowds per se.
0: Absolutely. That's, that's it. That's norms, right? That's what Cialdini's talking about. We're trying, we, we almost instinctively do what our neighbors are doing, what the norms are in the situation. Uh, and he's got some really funny examples of this. So I'll give you one. I, I, this is my favorite. There's some kind of uh, national park in the West where i i don't know exactly maybe it might be the redwood forest let's just use that as an example i don't know if this is actually it okay uh but people go into the redwood forest and they take home pieces of redwood you know like souvenirs on the mantle or whatever right well the problem with that is if everyone does that then the trees are stripped of their bark and there's no more redwood so we really don't want it's like hawaii used to be with the black sand beaches in hawaii people would always bring home a little jar of the black sand to show everybody yeah but if everyone does that then there's no more black sand uh, on the beach anymore. So this is a national park where people tended to take uh, you know, strips of uh, redwood. So they put a sign on the entrances to these areas of the park and it said, no, no, naughty, naughty. Don't uh, take away anything out of the park, you know, park, please leave the park as it is and all that. And they showed three little burglary guys, you know, with the striped shirt and the the, bl- uh, um, the mask on and, and uh, you know, tiptoeing out with bags of swag, you know, like, like, like they're tiptoeing at three of them. Right. Yeah. Well, what they found was that this actually was increasing the uh, amount of theft. And Cialdini says, of course, because you're showing three guys doing it. That's like saying, hey, everyone's doing it. So they I'll do it too. And so he had a manipulation where a different entrance, he, he randomly assigned it, only had one burglary guy instead of three. And in that area of the park, much less of the Redwood was taken out of the park. So without realizing it, the sign, which meant well, was trying to stop people from doing something actually it was increasing it because they had three guys doing it. And it seemed people instinctively without their realizing it, that this is what people do here. Uh, Cause there's these three guys doing it, you know? So only one guy, Oh, you know, one guy, well, that's an outlier. That's the bad guy, you know? So we don't want to be like that bad guy. And so it really did dramatically decrease the amount of uh, theft. So yeah, we do, we're really sensitive to what other people are doing and we do try to blend in and that's why all these things are contagious, like obesity and uh, uh, depression, cooperation, happiness. They just spread through social networks, um, which is a little lesson, you know. Like we, I always let everybody who wants to be a friend of you know whatever on Facebook, I say yes, you know, i just fine. I don't know who they are. I don't. I, I say yes, but the thing is, you're opening yourself up uh, through the way the the networks work to being affected by their mood, being affected by their behavior. Not necessarily by reading their posts, but the effects they have on other people who then, who, you know, like three or four or five steps removed from you, like it reverberates through the network. And these effects, you know, go three, four or five layers deep. So you're being affected by people you don't even know.
1: I could see that. That actually feeds into, have you heard of a determinism before?
0: Yes. Yes. It's a standard uh, sort of philosophical answer or stance towards the question of free will.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you can correct this, I'm going to say for the audience, but determinism idea is that it's sort of like physics, you throw a baseball, if you do the math, you know exactly where that baseball is going to end up and how it's going to land because of the gravity, the wind, the force you throw it with, the friction, and we could see as that, but basically life and everything and the way we react, what we say, and everything else is this crazy complex equation where we don't really have free will we're just feeling away and we think away and everything just as a result of these ripple effects that like in a way the end of the universe is already determined from the beginning
0: Mm -hmm. yeah sure i mean that's possible that's possible i mean you know the person who answered this question the best is richard dawkins um because he wrote the selfish gene again almost 50 years ago and he was really Criticized for such a depressing view of the world that really we are just meat machines and we're being run by our genes so that they can get into the next generation and we don't even matter we're just vehicles for the genes to uh, reproduce and get into the next generation and uh, and he said well people really criticized him because this was such a depressing horrible uh, view of existence um, and he said you know look I mean we live our life in our own time frame um we live our life uh, in our in terms of our internal experiences and our emotions and 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 we feel good when we're doing good and we we have our friends and family around us and all these things and 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 uh, this is this is actual this is actual valid data your feelings are real your happiness is real your satisfactions are real your pride in your kids that's all real that's all real things that you're feeling and as a real cause now you want to say that's even ultimately caused by something else well, then you can might as well just take the long view and say, you know, look at the long view of the history of uh, of, of, of the universe since the Big bang and play it fast forward. We're, we're on there for like one millisecond. I mean, maybe less than one millisecond, but that's it. And, and in the bigger scheme of things, you know, going a 10 billion years into the future. Yeah. I'm, you know, maybe we're all, all the earth and everything is no longer there. The sun is supernova and it's all fried. So, you know, so the ultimate ultimate destiny of all of us is dust floating around uh, the universe, you know. OK, you can look at it that way. <laughs> but, you know, hey. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I'm not going to be around to care. And I, I'm I'm here now in, in, in this time frame that we're in, which is not the astral astronomical or anything else. Um, sure, you can look at things at that level. But, you know. Why? <laughs> yeah. Why? Why waste your time? I mean, sure, that that's all possible, but that doesn't really answer the question. I I don't think the question about free will, I think that matters to people isn't ultimate determinism or reductionism. It, it, it's it's whether my choices, my mind, my feelings, my my reasoning, my goals, my all those things matter and, and change what I do, or do they not change what I do? Certainly those are also caused. I have the goals and motives I do because of evolution because of uh, my genetic programming also because of my early experience which by the way is another big source of unconscious influences the rest of your life uh because we're totally unaware of and we have no memories for our first 3 or 4 years of life very little certainly not at the first 6 months or year year and a half barely any and yet those really formative years you know those really formative experiences in the early years shape us the rest of our life people uh you know who had Uh, A a very attached, uh, caring, uh, uh, warm uh, parents when they were one years of age, you know, have fewer breakups of relationships in their 20s, more friends, they earn more money, they are less likely to get divorced in their 20s, 30s, 40s. I mean, it predicts everything, What predicts a lot of things. Uh, But this is at one year. So, but do we have any memory for that? Do we have any memory for how we were treated by our parents when we were one year old or two years old? You know, um, we don't, and yet it's in there. And even though we're not aware of it, that's why it's unconscious. You know, it has this great, this is great influence on us. Even politics. You know, the 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 four year old who's more fearful at a loud, noisy sound a startle has more conservative political attitudes in their twenties. So there's things about safety, survival, things like that that matter early on that shape us the rest of our life. We're not aware of it at all. So you know. Uh, that's that's the whole point that I'm trying to make about free will. The only way we have uh, free will is if we're aware of reality and don't live in some kind of nice land, fantasy land, where we, we believe what we want to believe because that's nicer to believe it. You know, that's delusional. That's not that's not free will. That's pretending we have free will like an ostrich sticking in the head in the sand. That's not really free will.
1: Gotcha. Into that free will determinism part, I want to say, too, is like the conscious and the unconscious is the same mind. Is it possible that there's a way that the unconscious is really like the mind and we just think we're the conscious mind?
0: Yeah, Spinoza, you know, the philosopher said that. He said, uh, we are like stones that fly. If someone throws a stone, it flies through the air. And we think we're flying of our own free will, you know. And uh, we're the stone that think, oh, I'm, I'm a superstone. I fly through the air. Look at me go. And it's really cause Spinoza threw you. But it's like, no, no. You know, or the line, you know, that uh, 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 someone uh, is really wealthy and they, they're they were born on third base but they think they hit a triple which is what michigan's football coach said about ohio state's football coach about two weeks ago so that kind of thing um yeah now i have totally lost my train of thought (laughs) now i'm thinking about the michigan ohio state game you know so uh yeah now i've totally lost what the question was sorry
1: oh it's all good yeah is it possible that the unconscious mind is the one that controls the conscious mind yeah. So, he,
0: so here's the thing. Think about this logically, just just logically, and that is, conscious thoughts have to come from somewhere. Now, in the old day, Descartes and and the, sort of the Holy Roman Empire and and religious beliefs said that our conscious thoughts were supernatural. They were uh, our connection. They were the part that connected us. They were our godlike quality. And Descartes said our conscious mind is our godlike mind, and and these causes these these thoughts are. Original causes, they don't come from anywhere else, Uh, just like God is the original cause and he's not caused or she's not caused by anybody else. Uh, So our conscious thoughts were original and they they directed what we did without being caused themselves. That's obviously a metaphysical or supernatural model because in science, everything is caused. There's nothing that's uncaused and then causes something else unless you want to believe in God and, and metaphysics and supernatural causes, right? Okay, that means conscious thoughts have to come from somewhere. Well, where else do they come from but unconscious processes? I mean, logically, there's no other place they could come from, and this is where they come from. So our unconscious, and people are actually studying that interface, the emergence of conscious thoughts out of unconscious processes. There are people studying that right now and and making breakthroughs on that. So it's pretty cool. But unconscious, uh, uh, the old brain, which is alert to what's going on around us, is trying to keep us safe is trying to help us reproduce our genes in the next generation so we are attractive and friendly to other people and cooperating so maybe we can do that you know all these kinds of old primary motives are guiding us from really deep like the tree has roots deep in the ground but those roots deep in the ground affect the leaves on top and that's the abstract conscious thought is the stuff on top but it's really affected by what's going on down in the basement down in the roots so those old you know, old brain kind of systems are generating impulses. They're generating uh, uh, ideas about what to do. Our learning does the same thing. We know what to do when we go into a museum. We know what to do when we go into a kitchen or a bathroom or a bedroom or on the park or with friends or in a party or in a religious service. All those things are generated for us and help guide us in very adaptive ways usually. Uh, and uh, then we can do what we want with the outputs coming from those unconscious systems and we can manipulate do our conscious thinking and, and, and decide what to do. Maybe we want to do something different. Maybe we want to, you know, get up and make an ass of ourselves at a, at a funeral. I mean, it's, it's for some reason, you know, but we can break the set. And this is the nice thing our conscious mind gives us the ability to do something different, not to just follow the train tracks that are laid down by our experience and just do the same things like habit all our lives. It allows us to recognize this is, Maybe a, a, a time to do something different, to break break routine, to, uh, you know, to do something not just uh, what's programmed into us by the years of our lives. And that's this huge, huge, flexible, strategic advantage we have over most other animals.
1: You could go in the kitchen or you could drive a car or you can do all of this that's impacted from outside sources. But if I want, I could eat the apple versus the orange or I could throw the apple, I could juggle them if I want to. I have like the freedom to do whatever I want as a result of these other forces at play.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can dramatically change your life. For example, I got some health news a month ago, month or so ago. It basically said, you gotta watch your carbs and you gotta watch your sugar uh, because these readings are getting too high. You don't wanna get diabetes. You gotta do something about this. So I went to a complete no carb, no sugar, absolutely none. Uh, diet. And it's fascinating because there are a lot of people in that situation. And there's a lot of alternatives to the starch and the carbs, which I love. I mean, I don't like sweets. I love chewy bread and crackers and, uh, you know, all the carb stuff. I love the rice. I love the carb stuff. But I'm making do with that. It's a dramatic change, but strategic. It was based on information about what the consequences. It changed my goals, changed my my diet, changed everything dramatically over, you know, uh, a, a span of a month. And you can do that, that, that you have that flexibility and you can adapt. You know, This is what Darwin said was our huge advantage as human beings, uh, as our species advantage was, he said the ones that survive you know, over time, That first of all, 99 point something percent of all species that ever existed are now extinct, 99%. What are the ones that survive? He said the ones that survive adapt to change. That's the number one most important thing to survival as a species. So we, we adapt. We, we get over bad bad times pretty well for the most part. We we adapt to things really well. We do that as individuals. We change things and, and have a new reality. We adapt to it and change our minds and, uh, and change our goals and change our behavior. We, we're really good at being able to do that. That's what our conscious mind gives us. Uh, if we were just a matter of our learned reinforcement histories like the behaviorists or you know or or just a, a routine and didn't have that flexibility to just totally change course you yeah. know then we get diabetes you know or then we do something else and we don't change uh we don't change our habits but we're able to that's you know that's the conscious part that's the wonderful strategic overlay that we've got that that is real that's if you want to call that free will i think that's legit to call that free will then we I mean, we have it. Um, but that's, that's the difference we have. And not all that many other animals uh, have that.
1: I think that's a great spot to end the show and the podcast. Dr. John Barge, thanks so much for coming out to the show.
0: Thank you, Bill. This has been wonderful. And, uh, and uh, best of luck to everybody and happy holidays to all.
1: And uh, just one last question. Is, um, is there any final message that you want to tell the audience?
0: Oh, my God. Hug your kids. Hey, you guys with babies out there, hug them, hug them, hug them, hug them, because babies sense the body warmth, and they trust the person giving them the body warmth, and they're infants, and they're totally ignorant of the world. They have a primitive mechanism that allows them to trust and bond and attach. It's all based on body warmth. Please, fathers, mothers, just hug your kids, because it'll pay off for them the rest of their life.
1: And that was Dr. John A. Barge. If you wanna see more about him or go buy some of his books, you can see the links for those in the description of the podcast. If you're tuning into the radio, I recommend you check out the podcast. And on the podcast, give a five-star rating, review the show, like, share with your friends. Every little bit helps. You can find this information at podcasttheway.com. This is FM 91.7, WHS Source at the top of the hour. This is 90.3 WRIU, South Kingston, at the top of the hour. And as always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com.